You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking with Tim Card, a CAR T-cell therapy recipient, diffused large B-cell lymphoma survivor, and a father of seven. Plus a dog. (laughs) Yes, seven kids and a dog. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're super excited to talk to you. We know that you were diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common uh, type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So when you were diagnosed, what was happening? How were you feeling? How did you get that diagnosis? Yeah, so when I was diagnosed at the time, I owned a, a gym. I owned a CrossFit gym. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, when, when, you, when you're the, the guy in charge, you're kind of always telling everyone, all right, do this, lift this, do it again, do it faster. Like, you don't really run the class by doing the exercise with them like you're in front of a spin class, but you're walking around and telling people what to do and all that stuff. And, um, I was, I just had this pain, like this nasty pain in my side for about a week. It just, it just wasn't going away. And I thought like I pulled a muscle, which is really not unusual considering my line of work and pulled muscle happened. I've done it before, probably do it again. Uh, but it just, it just felt off. It just felt weird. And I was coaching one of the classes and one of the other coaches there, she looks at me, she's like, Tim, you need to go. Like something's wrong. You know, I was all pasty and sweaty. I was sitting down a lot. I never had a lot of energy. Go to the hospital. Like, I'll close this up. You, you need to go. Something's wrong. So I went to urgent care. And they told me that, yeah, you either pulled a muscle or you've got gas. <laughs> you know, so which one of those would you like us to treat? So I said, yeah, please treat the, the pulled muscle because going to urgent care because you got gas is just embarrassing. <laughs> so I said, sure, we'll do that. He said, take some Flexerol and some Advil and you'll be fine by morning. Everything should be okay. So I did that. That was about nine o'clock. And by midnight, it hurt so bad that I drove myself into the ER. I just, I couldn't take it anymore. Wow. And when I got there, they did all the CAT scans and all that stuff. And, and that's when things started to kind of get out of hand. Now, they didn't tell me what the CAT scan showed initially. The ER doc was kind of dodging around the whole thing. I said, well, you know, what's going on? Why do I have this pain? I said, well, you know, the ER's job isn't to diagnose. It's to fix the acute problem and get you to your doctor. And you should really see your doctor. So, okay, you know, I will, but, but why am I in so much pain? Like, I don't have cancer, do I? And he says, well, you should really go see your doctor. So the next day I did, and they were, you know, checking me for Lyme disease and all these autoimmune problems and all this stuff that I, I knew wasn't right. Like, I knew that wasn't it, but I didn't know what it was. And I, I was still a little worried that something was really, really wrong because it was just such an unusually bad pain. Like, I've never felt anything like that. And they tested me for all this stuff. And then said, well, we'll figure it out when we get, we get the results back. And that was Friday. And then Saturday, I was able to log on to the hospital's health portal and pull up my records. And I saw the, the CAT scan, the read of the CAT scan. And right there, like first paragraph, you know, huge. You've got a big mass of lymph nodes on your left side. Our primary concern is lymphoma. Secondary concern is testicular cancer. So I was a little upset that the doc like knew exactly what we were right. dealing with, and and nobody called you. You know, I had to find out that I had cancer on the internet, which is not why people go on the internet mm-hmm. at all. So that's kind of where I was. I went back on Monday to my doc and kind of chewed him out, which was which was unfair because uh, he didn't have any more information that I did, and I apologize. But it was a terrifying time to find out, like you know, that one thing you never want your doctor to say, you know, is, is you've got cancer. Like there's not a whole lot worse than you can hear from your doc. And uh, so I was terrified. I was terrified of what was happening. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about lymphoma or other than my uncle had it. 
and he didn't make it out. That was my basis of knowledge for lymphoma was uh, Uncle George didn't make it. So I was completely terrified. I had no idea what was going on. So I find that so wild, Tim, because usually we hear someone say, you know, a doctor then called me and said, come into the office tomorrow or go into the ER tonight. But you found out right. off of your own curiosity to log into your portal. Yeah. Yeah. Super morbid curiosity. Was it persistent pain or was it pain that was kind of coming and going? Uh, it was all the time because this mass of, and this is unusual for lymphoma, you know, lymphoma is usually systemic, right? It's all over the place. It doesn't usually get all jammed up in one spot, but this one mass of lymph nodes was about the size mm -hmm. of a lemon. And that was pushing against stuff in my left yeah. side, you know, as against my, some organs in there, my spine, my stomach, like all that stuff. And that's right. what was wow. causing the pain. And if it didn't, like, who knows how long I would have gone mm -hmm. before I went to the doctor and said something doesn't right. feel right. You know, because, I mean, looking back, I see things that were probably symptomatic, mm. but I could also explain away. You know, like I would sit down and fall asleep. Well, of course I'm going to fall asleep. I have seven kids. I got a, a business, a real estate practice, a dog. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm tired. So when I sit down, I fall asleep. Like, that's not unusual. But, but I would fall asleep, like, at the drop of a hat. And, like, people were worried about it. And Trisha was worried but thought, well, he's just, you know, he's working hard. So that was, yeah, that was one thing looking back. Looking back at, at the gym, like, we recorded everything. You know, we kept records of everything. We wanted verifiable, measurable, repeatable results. So I had about a decade's worth of workouts in my log. And I knew what I could and couldn't do. And there was times where I was way off. Like, orders of magnitude off where I know I should have been. And... But and no good reason for it. But then the next day, I was okay. Wow. Yeah, so it was just, it was weird. It was just weird. But yeah, the pain was persistent. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. You said that the only time you really heard of lymphoma was through your Uncle George. And you didn't really yeah. know much about it. So had you heard of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? What questions did you have? Where did you go to for that information? I didn't know about mm -hmm. LLS at all. I didn't know about them until... Marsha and oh, wow. Hannah from the Central Pennsylvania chapter reached out to me. Uh, and that was after I was diagnosed. You know, they wanted me to, me to be the, the honored hero for the Light the Night Walk this month. And I didn't know anything about them until they said, hey, we'd like you to, you know, be our poster boy. <laughs> okay, sure. Let's do that. <laughs> so I went to Google. You know, I went, I went to talk to Dr. Google, which is never oh, a good idea. It's like your best friend and your worst friend all at the same time. Right. Like he just gives me all the information without any way of ranking, like, this is good information and this mm. is bad information. I was trying to go to the American Cancer Society or WebMD or, like, you know, things that seemed like they might be more up mm -hmm. and up than others. But there's just so much. And there's so much that's, you know, you get down in the weeds of the cancer diagnosis, there's so many different kinds of just lymphoma. Dozens and dozens and dozens of different kinds of lymphoma. And I didn't know what kind I had yet. Yeah, but I, but I you know, I've already learned more about the lymphatic system than I ever thought right. I would ever know, you know, by, by Saturday afternoon. Sure. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't really understand that there are so many types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, even that there's Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So right. it's, it's difficult. Right. Yeah. And, and your type of lymphoma is an aggressive form where there's aggressive forms and chronic forms, which are slow growing forms. Right. And basically for your type, they really try to cure you. Yeah, they want to, they want to knock it yeah. out as fast as possible. So what did they explain to you when they figured out that you actually had diffuse large B cell? It took a while to get to the diagnosis. They had to do, I think, four mm. biopsies <laughs> to figure out what it was because okay. it was being weird. Because it wasn't behaving like a typical lymphoma would with a big mass and all that stuff, like that just wasn't how lymphoma was. And they took one biopsy and they said, we didn't get enough, so we got to do it again. And they took another one and that didn't work. They got to do it again. I got three biopsies in my back before I finally had a solid diagnosis of what I was dealing with. Sure. My docs in Lancaster were consulting with Penn State docs and some other docs and trying to figure out what was going on. So it took a little while to finally get a diagnosis, but... They figured it was it was non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They just were kind of bickering about what particular flavor. Right. So, you know, the first thing they say, we're going to give you six rounds of this chemo called R-CHOP. You know, this little cocktail. And you're going to come in on Wednesday in the morning, and we're going to pump you full of poison, and then you're going to go home. And then three weeks later, we're going to do it again. And we're going to do that six times. 
And they told me, yeah, yeah usually this is something like an 85% success rate. So we're really fully expecting for this to be knocked out by the time we get to February. You know, everything should be fine by then, or at least statistically, it looks like everything would be good. So I was looking at it kind of like that. Like, this is going to be like Lyme's disease, right? This is going to be inconvenient. Mm. I'm not going to like it. But in six months, I'm going to be fine. Right. I went into my first round of treatment with that kind of attitude. Like, this will be inconvenient, but I'll be okay. And I know that you have so many considerations, too, with treatment, just having, you know, a large family. Right. Uh, and a business. Yeah, two of them. To oversee. Right. Two. Yeah. I was, I was, to oversee. I'm in real estate, too. So I was, I was trying to get that running, trying to get the business going. You know, the plan was to, to get the, the real estate kind of on-ramped enough that I could sell the gym mm -hmm. and make a smooth transition from one to the other. This kind of threw a wrench in things. Right. I really thought that, I had hoped anyway, that you know, I'd be able to get my chemo on Wednesday and then, you know, take Thursday and Friday off and then get back to work Monday morning. You mm -hmm. know, just jump in. 5.30 in the morning, I'm at the gym, run my classes, do my stuff, do the gym work. Little afternoon, 1 o'clock, start doing real estate, you know, work until the evening, get home, do the kids, all that stuff. I really thought I'd be able to do that. And I did that one day. And that was, that, that was the end of that. Wow. I just, I just couldn't do it. I was just so completely wiped out. You mentioned that you were waiting for the results with the doctors going back and forth amongst each other. What was the time frame? So I went to the ER end of September. I finally talked to the oncologist like the first week of October. So that didn't take very long. I got my port put in on Halloween and had the first round of chemo on November 1st. Mm -hmm. So there was about a month yeah. of hemming and hawing. It was, it was a long month. And you just feel so frustrated. Like there's nothing that I can do. Right. And I just got to sit here and wait for, for smarter people than me to figure out what my next step is. And we hear so many patients say, when they hear that diagnosis, they say, okay, well, let's start. Let's get, let's get going. Let's get yeah, this thing let's out. Yeah, let's go. If someone says, we know it's NHL, but we don't know which subtype. And then a whole month goes by. I can only imagine what, what you're thinking during this time, like how that waiting period must have been and how stressful it must have been. It was pretty tense. It was, it was not my favorite month. Yeah. Yeah, just, it was a lot of appointments. It was a lot of trying to figure out what to do with all of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I keep these businesses running or can I keep these businesses running and what's going to happen and you know, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to put food on the table in this time? Mm -hmm. and how am I going to be able to take care of the kids and help out around the house? And, you know, spoiler alert, I, I couldn't take care of the kids or help out around the house. <laughs> and that pee in our chop is prednisone. That makes you quite a bear. Yeah. And uh, that didn't help. Right. <laughs> Actually, the third round, third or fourth round, I was, I just gotten this stuff on, it was Wednesday, so it must have been Wednesday night or Thursday, and I was starting to feel kind of rotten, and my sister came out, my sister and my parents live in New Jersey, where I grew up, and it's about two and a half hour drive from where they are to where we are. My sister was out this time, and I was hiding in my room, like in my big leather chair, you know, the lights are out, just trying to just calm myself down and be okay and not throw up and, mm. you know, watch TV or something, and... Yeah, and everyone's running around like there's, you know, dinner's got to get cooked and kids have to be fed and bathed and watered and, and homework has to get done and got to get put to bed. Like it was, it's just a chaotic time, right? It's just from four or five o'clock until about eight o'clock in my house. There's just a million moving parts all at the same time. It's just this wonderful, loving chaos, but it's still chaos. Right. And I'm just sitting there trying to like block it out and like just be okay. And my sister comes in and says, hey, um, how about, you know, when I leave tomorrow, why don't I take you back to mom and dad's and you can, you know, ride the weekend out there to be quiet. You can do that. You'd be okay. And I immediately thought and said, I don't want to do that. Like that's so unfair to Trish, like to leave her here all alone with the kids and all the house stuff, do everything on her own and all the driving. And no way I can't do that to her. And, and Allie says, no, no, you, you're not understanding. This was Trish's idea. <laughs> you're leaving. Wow. Pack a bag. Like, I'm trying to make it feel like this was your idea. But it's not. So we already called mom. They can't wait to have you. Like, get your backpack. We're leaving tomorrow. Wow. That actually brings up a good point, though, that there are needs that both sides have. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's definitely a very different experience. Uh -huh. It seems like the patient is trying to express to the caregiver what it is that they're going through. And the caregiver is trying to express to the patient what they're going through. But that's really not the conversation they need to have right now. Like, that's a conversation to have, for sure. But in the thick of it, like the caregiver's job is to help me survive. Mm -hmm. 
right? That's, that's, that's the conversation we need to have. And the patient's job is to not piss off the caregiver. <laughs> right? Do all we can <laughs> yeah. to not, to, to be thankful and appreciative and not piss you off too much, which is tough. Like I wasn't really good at not pissing off my wife before I was sick. Mm-hmm. So you throw all this other <laughs> stuff into it and it's a real challenge. But there is a lot of clashing because we were both looking at the same situation from very, very different points of view. Right. And you're thinking she needs, you know, she needs you there to help her out. And you're like, oh, that, that right. would and be she's great thinking for he me needs to leave. To go. And she's like, <laughs> oh. I wish he'd leave. <laughs> I wish yeah. he would go away now. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I don't want to make it sound like she was being mean or anything. She really was. Of course. Of and course it was a good not. idea for me to get out where it's quiet in my parents' house. Like, there's not a lot going on there, and that's okay, and that's exactly what I needed. And that gave my parents a way to feel like they could help. You know, they, sure. they, they want to help too. Like they, they really wanted to be, like they were furious that they couldn't be donors for, for bone marrow. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, but guys, you're, you know, old. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> I'm too old to donate bone marrow. Like, you're definitely too old. <laughs> so they were looking for ways to be as helpful as they could, and this is a great way to do it. Yeah. That is a great way. And it's really hard sometimes to, you know, allow those long distance caregivers to really help out. And you're right. Long distance caregivers don't always know what they can do. Yeah. And that was part of what I was feeling terrible about. Part of the guilt that I was carrying around is like, yeah, they're driving two and a half hours like every week for a couple of days. They go home for a day or two and they turn around and come back. Come home for three or four days, turn around and come back. My sister was pregnant. She's still driving back and forth. Like, yeah, I felt terrible that I can't really do anything. And all these people are upending their lives mm-hmm. to help me through this patch. I felt awful. You know, I felt useless and I felt like such a burden to everybody around me, which wasn't helpful in the whole healing process. Right, right. There's so many psychosocial things that take place in addition to physical effects of just right. this diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of mental hoops you jump through that it, that are not great. Right. You mentioned, so you were given RCHOP, again, a drug combination therapy used to treat NHL. When right. was the, the conversation regarding CAR-T introduced? Sure. So after three rounds of RCHOP, we took another scan, and everybody said everything looked great. But I wasn't feeling it. And I told the docs, I told Trish, I told everyone, like, I, I think something's wrong. Like, I don't think this is catching anymore. It felt different. And I couldn't put my finger on, on what it was. And I thought maybe I'm just being paranoid or, you know, whatever. And the doc said, you know, you got to let the medicine do its work. You got to give it time to do things. Everything looks good now. And it was like the thing had shrunk from the size of a lemon to like the size of a grape. Like on the outside, it looked like things were going fine. But internally, I really felt like something was wrong. I felt like something's not clicking anymore. And I don't know what it is, but I feel like something might be off. And everyone kind of, no, 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 just let the, let the, let the, the medicine work and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I got my last round of RHF on Valentine's Day, which is a very romantic way to spend Valentine's Day. <laughs> it was great. We had a date night. We got to spend the whole day together watching bad TV in an infusion room. Very romantic. So we got the last one on Valentine's Day and we got another scan, I think three weeks later, a month later. And the doctor's office called me at the next day and said, hey, can you come and see doc like right now? And I knew like immediately, like that's not good news. Like, there's no way the doc is rushing me in to tell me the good news. So, well, I, I mean, I can get there pretty soon. So, how about 2.30? Like, well, it's 2.15. Like, yeah, can you get there at 2.30? <laughs> wow. Okay. This is a different experience than yeah. when you were first diagnosed. Yeah, this is like, this is almost a worse fear than I wonder if I have cancer. Right? That's a bad mm. one, right? But I wonder if the really strong medicine didn't work. Mm. Like, that's really bad. Because they tell you, like, the 85% success rate is true, but that means 15% yes. of the people don't, don't recover. But, and then you get, in my situation, refractory disease, right? This, this is growing in spite of treatment, right? So now I've got like a 15% chance of, right. of a long-term survival. That's a scary number to read. That's a scary number to hear. Absolutely. So when they figured out that, you know, the, the stuff had come back, it was as big as a lemon again. Like it, it had been growing for the last... You know, six weeks, this thing had been growing again. Two months had been growing. They said, we can't, we can't treat you here in Lancaster. We're going to send you to Penn State Hershey and see those docs there. So that's when the CAR-T conversation came in. You know, initially, my initial oncologist said, well, you're going to need a bone marrow transplant. You know, we don't do that in Lancaster. We'll do that in Hershey. 
So they sent me up with Dr. Amen over in Hershey, and we started that conversation about a bone marrow transplant. And he's telling me about all the different kinds, and I was going to have to get someone else's blood, and there's a whole list. There's a, hundred, a couple hundred thousand people on this list, and we've got to match them up. And you know, it's not just finding the same blood type. You've got to get all these protein markers mm-hmm. that got to line up. Like, and I, I think there's, there's 300,000 people on the list, and I got two matches, and he was ecstatic that there wow. was two. Yeah. yeah, two is a win, two out of 300,000. Like, those aren't great odds, but we found two of them. And then he says, but also we've got this other thing. Like we've got this like side door issue we want to talk about too. You're probably like, what else? <laughs> Ooh, there's another option. Cool. <laughs> so Penn State hadn't done any CAR-T procedures yet at all. And they were all ready to, and all the doctors done all the training and everything was ready, but they were looking for an ideal first candidate. You know, they really wanted someone that they could make a success story out of. Wow. And then it ended up being me. I was relatively young. Before I got sick, I was in phenomenal shape. I didn't have any other underlying health issues. Dr. Amon called me annoyingly healthy. <laughs> it's from the CrossFit. <laughs> that didn't hurt, you know? Like, that really helped a lot. I built into a lot of the health and wellness stock of my mm-hmm. body. So I had some reserves to lean on. Yeah. But So they were really looking for a good first candidate. And that's when that's where they brought it up. They said, would, "Would you be interested in being that?" And uh, I was a little nervous. You know, like I know the first time I do something is almost never the best time I've done something. You know, so I was a little worried that, like, you know, did they have all the kinks worked out? Have they ironed out all the procedures yet? Mm-hmm. But I also figured, you know, these guys aren't just going to wing it. You know, they've got all these people that are going to be looking at it, and all these I'll probably have more eyes on me in this situation than I would in a bone marrow transplant, which is at, at this point kind of run in the mill. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing really exciting or new or cutting edge about a bone marrow transplant. They've done thousands of them, thousands and thousands and thousands. Anyway, this is the first. So I know I'm going to have a lot of people following this and making sure that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So that's how I learned about CAR-T. Would you like to be a guinea pig? Okay. <laughs> so Mount Joy resident becomes the first patient at Penn State Cancer Institute to receive CAR-T, huh? Yeah, it worked out well for them, right? Like I was right up the street. <laughs> Very convenient. I checked off a lot of their boxes. Right. So we had to get the hospital to approve it. We had to get my insurance company to approve it. There's a lot of things that had to all line up. And in the meantime, like while this is all happening, we're still going through the, the bone marrow transplant process because they ran parallel you know, until we had to make a hard decision, one or the other. Sure, sure. Um, so both those trusts. So in the meantime, I'm getting salvage chemo. I had to get a week worth of radiation at one point at the end of July or beginning of August. You know, so things are still mm. progressing. I'm still very sick. Yeah, but nothing's getting done that's going to actually cure me until September. You know, so this is May or April that I went to go see him first. So from April to September, it was just keep him alive until we figure out what we're going to do. Wow. And I want to actually address something that you said. When you said doctors aren't going to wing it, I think that's also something important to note because at LLS, we always want to educate patients, caregivers, and really anybody that clinical trials isn't something where they just came up with it yesterday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And said... It wasn't some mad scientist like, ooh, let's try this. Exactly. Exactly. It is, I mean, clinical trials, they're used to determine the most effective and safest treatment for a disease. And like you said, it is understood that because it is a trial, you are kind of being watched more because they're really trying to figure out every single detail of, right. of that trial. Yeah. This is beyond clinical trial phase. I was just the first mm-hmm. one to get it at Hershey. Well, it's important that even before it got there, right. that they've spent years yeah. in clinical like trials. Yeah, getting ready. Yeah, like getting stuff set up and, and ironing it out, ironing out a lot of those kinks. And, right. And the other reason that we, we decided to go through, because he really, he left the choice up to me. Either one, you can do. Mm-hmm. They've both got their pluses and minuses, and they're both about as effective as the other. You know, there's not a lot of long-term studies on how, long, on how well CAR-T lasts for 20 years, right? Because it just hasn't been around that long. Right. So the initial effectiveness looks to be about the same, 40, 50% in that ballpark. But what I was trying to do, and what, what the way he presented it, was what I was trying to do is manage the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I get CAR-T, or if I get a bone marrow transplant, tried and true, like everybody does this, if I get this and it doesn't work, what's my next choice? Like mm-hmm. What's the next run down the ladder? And that would be CAR-T or something else on the clinical trials. But either way, they couldn't do that at Hershey. If I get bone marrow transplant, I could not get CAR-T treatment at Hershey if the bone marrow transplant didn't work. I'd have to go somewhere else. 
Mm-hmm. And anywhere else would be disastrous. You know, even Philadelphia would be extraordinarily difficult for my family and myself to do that. You know, CAR-T, I'm in there for three weeks, and then I'm back and forth at the hospital every other day for a month after that. And like, there's a lot of driving back and forth. Like, then it could have been Philadelphia. It could have been Nebraska. Like, who knows? Like, we don't know where it was. But if I got the CAR-T and that didn't work, I could still do a bone marrow transplant in Hershey. Right. So I could mm-hmm. keep the same medical team. I could keep the same, you know, f- familiar hospital with the same nurses and the kids know where I'm at and it's only half an hour away. Like, there's a lot of benefits to the downside if we did it in this order. The other side is that the recovery time for CAR-T is dramatically less than it is with a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. And that was a big plus for me. Like, I'm young. I want to get back to doing the things I want to do. You know, I'm only 42. I'm not that old. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, got, <laughs> I've got stuff I want to do. <laughs> and the thought of taking off another two years just to recover from this treatment was not appealing. Yeah. Well, first of all, to be given a choice of different options is something great for patients. Not every patient has the chance to have different treatment options and different points of treatment. So just to have that, but you're right, there's so many considerations that you do have to take. It's not just, you know, what treatment am I going to do? It's what treatment is the best for me and my family at this point in time. Yeah. You mentioned recovery. I want to talk about the effects of CAR T cell therapy. Sure. Once you got it, how were the days, weeks after that for you? Yeah, they were uh, they were kind of awful. So when they took the cells out of me, beginning of August, middle of I think it was like the first or second week of August, they took the cells out, mm-hmm. and that took all day. You know, they, they hooked up to a phoresis machine. They put a like a drinking straw sized catheter in your chest. You know, pull the blood out. It's a disturbingly large straw that they stick like right into your jugular. Wow. It's really, really big. And they leave it there for a couple of days and then they pull it out. They pulled it out of my chest with no anesthesia whatsoever. They just yanked it out. What? Uh, oh. Oh, yeah. It hurt really bad. <laughs> that hose is really what it looked like. But so they put that in. They ship them off to California and I wait. Yeah, I wait about three weeks. I came in on the 9th of September. They gave me one last round of chemo to try to wipe out as much of everything as they possibly could before they put the cells in. They wanted to take care of as much as they could. So when they put the new cells in, uh, there's less friendly fire. Let's just focus on finding the cancer cells. So it was weird because, you know, I'm the first one, right? So when they put the stuff back in, the whole hospital room, there must have been a dozen people in there. Wow. Like all watching this, it was really odd. So I'm lying in the bed, and Trisha's sitting next to me holding my hand, and they're pumping this stuff into me, and it smelled really, really bad. Like wow. the the, mm. the scent was like it was like burnt garlic and cream corn. Wow. It, was, it was a really bad smell. I guess that was the antifreeze or whatever it is they used to the, the thawing agent. Because they brought it in like frozen and they had to thaw it out and real quick put it into me. And the, the thawing agent smells like burnt Thanksgiving. <laughs> that is actually very vivid, and um, <laughs> and I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's standing around watching me. Like They said it was going to take half an hour, but I'm a CrossFitter, so I do everything faster. So I got it done in six minutes. And, uh, six minutes? Yeah, it didn't wow. take long. It's not a lot. Of, it was like a, a, a sandwich-sized Ziploc bag yeah. full of stuff. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. There's millions of cells in there, but they're all very, very small. So it really wasn't a whole lot of actual physical material. It was just a lot of very small cells. Right. And then I just hung out. Everybody filtered out, and I watched Deadpool on the TV. And <laughs> like, I felt fine. Like, the first day, I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I guess I'll get through this okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trish was there for most of the day. She left for dinner, and, or after dinner, and, and I hung out that night. I watched a movie on the iPad and fell asleep. So the first day was fine. But then the next day is when the fever started. It's that cytokine storm, that cytokine release syndrome. Yeah. Where your immune system realizes that we just pumped in a bunch of cells that even though they were from me, they are now different enough that your body's going to fight them. Right. And which is why we pumped me full of chemo the day before. Right. So that fight was pretty weak. But my fever still got up to over 105. And the highest I remember is 105.6, which is pretty high. That is. Yes. Like brain boilingly high. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They, they were coming in and putting ice all over me and like trying to you know, pump me full of stuff to get the fever to come down and it wasn't working. And, and that was probably for, for a day or two that fever was that high like that. It finally broke. 
and got down to like 102. And that's really when I felt uncomfortable. Like 105, I think your body just stops caring. Like we can't, like there's no way feeling bad is going to make this any better. Right. So it just stopped. And I felt okay. I was a little spacey, but I didn't feel bad. When it got down to 102, it really started to get uncomfortable. But then after that is when the second thing came in. That's the neurotoxicity. And they warned us about these things. They told me, you're going to get a flu and you're probably going to end up, you're going to get this neurotoxicity. 90 some odd percent of people get both of these side effects. We're ready for them. And the way they kept an eye out for the neurotoxicity, they had me fill out a little questionnaire every day and then sign my name. You know, so who's the president? What day is it? Where are you? Who's this sitting next to you? Like very simple questions. Mm -hmm. And then my signature. And my signature is usually a pretty big, bold signature. And I, they showed me the paper and like watched it as the days went by, got, mm -hmm. got smaller and smaller. And now it's just this little tiny chicken scratch thing. And then there was just N.A., like no signature required. For about six days, I was in the ICU. Wow. Trisha was saying something wasn't quite right with me. And then they looked at my signature and realized something's wrong. They rushed me down to the ICU. They thought I was having seizures. I'm not sure that I actually was, mm -hmm. but, but I was acting like I was. So they had me in, in the boots to keep my, my toes from getting locked, pointed down, and all the sensors all over me. I couldn't eat. I don't really remember much of those, those six days in the ICU. Uh, what I do remember is unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. my dad being there, and I remember just like holding, like leaning on him, like, I can't do this anymore. And this is too hard. I can't do this. But there's no choice. It's not like they can take the stuff out. Right. Like the only way through it is through it. Right. But I remember that. I remember at one point, Trish was there playing my guitar for me. Actually, the, the hospital did a film, a video of this whole process because they wanted to, to document the first one. So they got me from almost the moment I walked into the hospital in the very beginning in April all the way up through this. And they showed me some of the raw footage of me in the ICU. And it's really bad. Wow. Um, at one point yeah. when I first got there, they put a catheter in me mm -hmm. and I yanked it out, which is not the good way to remove a catheter. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh. Do you remember doing that? No, I don't, but I remember it hurt for about a month afterwards. Oh, wow. And then they put mittens on me because I was trying to pull everything else out, too. I was, like, trying to maintain... Like, they're just, like, trying to watch a drunken three-year-old. Mm. Like, just... Mm. Like, I was... It, it was that bad. Like, I couldn't like really, I didn't know what I was oh. doing. Yeah, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I didn't know where I was. And I, I remember one lady... <laughs> this is funny. I had to have 24-hour babysitting, right? Not if, if there wasn't a doctor there, so someone had to be there. So I had these patient care advocates who are wonderful people, and you know their job is to hang out overnight, you know, just make sure I don't do anything silly. And this one lady, I can't for the life of me remember her name, but if she hears this, I'm I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I just remember yelling at her, like, "What are you even doing here? What is your job?" Because all I wanted to do was take my pants off. Like that's all, I, and I don't know why. <laughs> But I just wanted to take my pants off. And I had to stare at her and oh drop her off. She's like, Tim, put your pants on. Fine. Why are you here? Go away. And I was just really belligerent and mean. And I, so I don't know who that was. And I'm really sorry that I was so mean. If you're Aww. listening here today, Tim is sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. Now, I know that usually for CAR-T, they really do try to prepare you yes. for these things because most patients have these after effects and and most of the time you know in close duration after the actual procedure they told you about this but can they really prepare you for something like this nope that's the short answer no they can't there's really no way to it was good that they knew it was coming and they told us it was coming that was good but you know, like sometimes like the, and the doctor says you're going to get a shot, it's going to sting a little bit, and then you get it, and it really wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. This is not that. You know, this is the, the opposite of that. This is so much worse than what we thought it was going to be. Because not everybody gets it to the same degree. And then the guy that had CAR-T after me was in the ICU for a day. You know, his, his response was not nearly as bad as mine was. Right, right. But no, it was hard. And I, I lost 30 pounds in those 17 days that I was in the hospital. I hardly ate anything. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I came out just, I passed a kidney stone, you know, because oh, wow. all this medicine, like, bunched up and, and created this, what they call it, renal sludge, I think is what they called it. Oh, yeah. You know, and then there was a kidney stone, too. And I think I didn't feel it because I was on so much other pain medicine that, you know, it just, it just got mixed in with all the rest of it. Wow. 
And for people who've had that, that's painful in itself. Yeah, I, I've I heard. Must say, I've heard. It I'm really glad is. I missed it. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. Because <laughs> it, it's painful, and they say because I've I've had, and they say it's even more painful for men. So I'm glad that you do not remember that part. Yeah, I've heard that kidney stones are almost as bad as a man cold. And those are terrible. <laughs> They're so bad. A little worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever had a man cold? I've been pretty sick. <laughs> you mentioned there was a moment where you said to yourself, like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. But then to yeah. your point, you have to. There's no way for them to take it out. So now it's, it's your body fighting and kind of you're just going through what you need to go through. So when was it when you said to yourself, I think I'm going to be fine. I think that I've gotten through the worst bit of it and I'm going to be okay. Was there kind of a prominent time when you were able to think that? I think when I got out of the ICU and I went back up to the seventh floor where the cancer ward is, I felt like, okay, that's probably the worst of that. But getting through the treatment and feeling I'm going to survive the treatment is a different time from feeling like I'm going to survive this disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I felt like once I got out of the ICU, the treatment wasn't going to kill me. Right. But I was still concerned about the disease. And I really didn't know, and we wouldn't know if this worked. I think they said, you don't know if it worked until it works. Either the cancer goes away or it doesn't. And then they initially said, and it's going to be about two years before we know whether or not it worked. So I was really like geared up for two years of angst you know, and just not sure what's happening and, and, and not knowing if I'm going to be okay. But then we went to the doc a couple months later and he said, hey, you know, the, the, the good news is that all of the, the current studies of CAR-T show that if you make it six months the chances of it coming back dramatically fall off. So if you can get to six months, you'll probably be okay. Mm-hmm. And that was at like five months. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're like, one more so, to go. Let's see. Let's see. Like, boy, this just got a lot easier. <laughs> but then what I didn't know is that there is a brain-blood barrier and, and also a, a ball-blood barrier, right, where your body has decided that those are two very important parts of your body and we're not going to let poison get into them. So a lot of times what will happen with, with, with CAR-T, because it's, you, know, it's a, you put it into your blood, it doesn't get into your brain, it doesn't get into your, your testicles. So the cancer will hide out there and wait, and kind of wait for things to simmer down for a couple months and then pop up again. Mm-hmm. You know, and that happened to, to someone else at the hospital that I knew. And uh, I found that out you know, like five months later, or five months away from my treatment. Like, oh man, I didn't know that was a possibility. So where did you go for support? I mean... Again, I mean, you, you come out of the ICU. I'm assuming that you still want to know what's going on in regards to this therapy and any new developments. Where did you go to kind of get the support from those people who could actually relate to what you were going through? Whether it be someone who may be also in the midst of CAR-T or just somebody who has the same diagnosis and can shed some light on questions you may have had. Yeah, um, the the first person... When I first got sick, there was another woman at my gym who also had just gotten through cancer. You know, I just found out and I was terrified and she sat me down and she just looked me right in the eyes and she says, welcome to the club. Mm. And I never thought of it that way. I never heard it expressed that way because I was never in the club. But here it is, like now we're all part of this. So like I knew there was people out there that were sick and that had been through stuff like this and were here to help. But I didn't really meet a whole lot of those folks you know, until I was in the hospital and I went to the first support group there. I didn't lean on a lot of sick folks. Now, we got a lot of help. You know, you said, who, you know, who did I lean on for support as far as, like, taking care of stuff at home? And we had a meal train set up within a couple of hours of finding out that I was sick. The gym ran itself. The coaches stepped up, said, we're going to, you get better, we'll take care of this. Right. You know, and they, they ran it while I was sick. And I didn't have to go in at all. And they just took care of everything. And then when I found that I was still sick, I sold it to one of the coaches. You know, one of the people that's, that had stepped up and helped, I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, you want to buy it? And they said, yeah, sure. So I sold the gym to her. People from the gym, people from our parish here in Mount Joy, in our church, people from the community, like that, they really stepped up, and my family, you know, to help out with the day-to-day stuff. But as far as, you know, cancer folks, I really felt pretty alone. You know, and that's part of, of why I'm doing what I'm doing now, to let people know, especially people that are new to this, and new to this whole cancer club, that you're not alone. That you're not out there alone. There's people that can help you. There's, people, there's organizations like LLS that I didn't even know about. 
that can help in tremendous ways. You know, besides just you know, helping out with the, the, the research side of things. Like there's very practical day-to-day stuff that you can help with. There's supporters that are out there. There's people that have been through this. There's ways to not feel alone. That was, that was a big struggle, was just feeling very isolated from the rest of the world. I just think it's important to make those connections, and we do hear from a lot of our patients and caregivers alike that keep saying, you know, I felt like I was the only one going through this. Exactly. And they'll meet each other, and they have similar stories. And they can't believe it because they really felt like, you know, nobody else is going to ever feel this way. Right. And you hope nobody does. Yeah, but the truth is there's, unfortunately, millions of people that do. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's millions of people that have cancer right now that are, that are in the thick of it or that have beaten it, you know, right now. So we're not alone, but it's, very, it's a very isolating feeling. Mm-hmm. And that makes you know, the, the physical, we were talking earlier about the mental side of it too, like feeling alone is not helpful for, for feeling better. Right. And even though I was surrounded by people, like surrounded by the friends and family that love me, like it was a different type of loneliness I'd never experienced before. I think that's why it's so important, like you said, for people to find what is out there and connect either locally or whether it be an online platform. Here at LLS, we created weekly chats. We created this podcast. Uh, we also have LLS Community, which is a community of blood cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, and they create a profile and they're able to communicate and converse with each other, ask questions, answer questions that are posed to the entire community, and then really really have that fluid conversation about whatever the topic may be. And it's because of the belief that no one should have to face a blood cancer diagnosis alone. Yeah, for sure. Because it's it's not good for you. You know, stats have showed that being in isolation and kind of being in that mindset of I'm alone will do nothing to help. No, nothing uh, at all. It does no favors. Yeah, yeah. I've been really blessed in the last couple of months since, since I've been out to be able to talk to a lot of patients at the hospital. Like, they'll have people that are going through CAR-T call me. You know, I, I mean, they always ask, but I always say yes. Like, yeah, please have them call me. And I'm able to walk them through that um, through being the honored hero with uh, with you guys in central Pennsylvania I've been able to speak to a lot of people where there's a lot of money uh, to help out with you guys and all the work that you're doing uh, I'm on billboards with Hershey which is kind of weird there's, there's probably a, a dozen billboards around here that have a picture of me all bald and scary on my bike in my garage and uh, it's very <laughs> odd it's very very odd but it's opened a lot of doors for me to be able to be that person for somebody else I really feel strongly about doing that, about being able to, to help initiate the new members. In meeting new people, I heard that you have a new friend that you met, that you have created a new resource yes. with. Yes, oh yeah. Would you like shedding some light on <laughs> Oh yeah, and I met in the hospital. He was in the middle of his bone marrow transplant. He has myeloma. Yes, yep. he's got that one. He was getting his bone marrow transplant. I was in for one of my rounds of salvage chemo. And somehow, wandering those halls, we ran into each other and just hit it off. And it, it, we're an odd couple. We just had a very similar sense of humor, and we bounced things off each other. And in the middle of all this, we're just laughing. And we're just laughing at all of this ridiculousness. And we stayed in touch. I, I saw him there. You know, I, I left before he was out. I, I touched base with him a couple times. Like and he, he said, when I, when I walked into his... his uh, Hospital was like, who's this white guy that's not the doctor coming in here to talk to me? <laughs> so, so that's the story of how we met. I wandered into his room. We, ex- we exchanged numbers. We talked a bunch. Not creepy no, at all. Not, at all. <laughs> not creepy at all. Hey, man, you look terrible. How are you? <laughs> and I went back, and he was there again. We saw each other. We had lunch, and we just chatted back and forth. And then somehow along the way, LLS was at that support group at the hospital and they asked if I could be there and I hadn't been since I was in the hospital. I'm just, I've never really been a support group guy. They're wonderful things. I just, it just never really was my thing. Hmm. But, and I'm I'm starting to see now more and more that probably it is my thing. I'm just being stubborn about it. (laughs) Uh, But, they asked me to come and and hang out. I said, yeah, sure. I haven't seen those guys in a while ago. And Oya walks to the door. So, man, look at that because he lives like a long way away from the hospital too. how about that? So we started talking again, and we were laughing with Hannah, and, and Hannah says, hey, you guys should, like, start a podcast. It's like, oh, well, hey, that's not a bad idea. You want to do that? And he's like, yeah, let's do that. So we did. <laughs> uh, we're calling it Dying Laughing. 
going through this, it, it's kind of looking at our way of being able to reach out to people that are in the middle of it and, and feeling less alone. Like, how can you know that you're not doing this by yourself? How can you laugh at this a little bit? Because there is some funny stuff that happens in all this, and, it'll, and you got to find it. Some of it's dark, but it's funny, and, and we're going to exploit that. So it really is trying to, to, to figure something that, like, that we would have liked to have listened to while we were sick. Yeah, we're sitting in the hospital room, and these guys get it and, and are giving us a little bit of hope through all of this. Not just us, but also our caregivers and the other people that are around you. Like Just a perspective of the patient that's not from the perspective of the patient that you're specifically dealing with. Sometimes it's a little close. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a little, it's a little too close. Mm-hmm. You're kind of lost. You can't see the forest for the trees if it's your patient that you're dealing with. You, know, you hear someone else say it, it might carry a different weight. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make people laugh in, in the face of all this and feel less alone. I think that's such a great resource for so many people. It's one thing to read it, but it's a whole nother thing to actually hear it from a person going through it. Right. Like, I've been there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he knows what I'm talking about. He's not giving me an example, but he... Right. This is in the Webster's Dictionary definition. Right. And a quick shout out to Hannah because she connected us with you. So, she did. She's yeah, great. Yeah, so hi, Hannah, in our Central Pennsylvania <laughs> chapter. <laughs> hi, Hannah. <laughs> She's going to be on the podcast, too. I just talked to her uh, today. Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. So we've got her. We've got another patient, another cancer survivor that I met through CrossFit. Uh, he's going to come on. I'm trying to get some of the nurses from Penn State to get on and get their point of view of what it's like. Nice. Uh, oh, he's got another patient that he met, another survivor he met. We're going to record that show on Thursday. So we've got a whole bunch of episodes lined up, and we're just going to see where this thing rolls. We're really excited and, That's great. and hope to help out a lot of people. Nice. We'll definitely be listening as well. Please do. And <laughs> everybody should. Yes, yes. Um, what's the website? It's Dying Laughing Podcast. The website is dyinglaughingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Awesome. And you'll be able to sign up for the RSS feed and, or get it from iTunes and all that stuff. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so exciting. Really great. And it's so important, yes, it I think, that that you as a patient know how important it is to let newly diagnosed patients know that they're not alone because of what you felt. So as you know, Tim, I mean, those listening, I mean, the target audience of this podcast, it's patients and caregivers. So for those listening, what advice would you leave with them today when they are listening to this episode and they're like, wow, Tim's an awesome guy can't wait to subscribe to his podcast. <laughs> what, what advice would you have for somebody who may be just getting diagnosis or maybe in the same stage as you? What would you say to them? One thing would be to, to be as kind as you possibly can be to your caregivers. You know, to thank them profusely for everything they're doing because it's, it's hard on them and you may not see it at the time because you're going through your own stuff. They really try and be as, as kind and loving and patient as you can be in the situation. Find some good resources to look at. I know the LLS has a bunch of resources, but like, don't just go Googling around and reading medical journals because it's dense. It's dense and a lot of the information doesn't pertain and you don't know the language. Unless you're a doctor, mm-hmm. it's like reading a foreign language mm-hmm. sometimes. And that's the other side is, is find a doctor that you really like and can talk to and trust. Like get another opinion. Mm-hmm. If you don't like a doc, go find another one. Right. Such great advice. It is. You know, we shop around for what's the best deal on a car. We shop around for for so many things. But I feel like we don't know that we can shop around for a doctor that communicates with us well. And everybody yeah. communicates differently. So the best doctor for me may not be the... Yeah, it's not like one doctor yeah. is good and one doctor is bad. Exactly. Yeah, but but shout out to Dr. Amen at Hershey. He was, he was fantastic. Nice. He was... He was a great doc, and he was a great doc for me. We got along very well. And there was a lot of laughing in spite of all this stuff. We just Our sense of humor uh, lined up very well, which made all these very difficult conversations just a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And something that you mentioned earlier that I think is also very important is you said you knew how you were feeling, and even though people were saying, oh, you know, the, it's work, you know, the treatment's working, but it was you that said, no, I think something's off. Yeah, And I think it's so important for patients to hear that because we always say when a patient is sitting with a doctor, there are two experts in the room. There's the doctor and then there is the patient. And the patient knows exactly how they feel. 
Right, so don't be afraid to be your own advocate. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, many times people will say, you know, the doctor knows it all, this they know more than me, let, let me just sit here and listen. But you know if something feels off, you know that it's your body. Right. And it's so important to know that it's that's exactly the time and place to get all your questions out. And if you can't right. get your questions out or you do feel uncomfortable, so many doctors tell us, that's not the doctor for you. Right, find a doctor you can talk to. Exactly, that's exactly right. So how are you feeling now? Now I feel pretty good. I ride my bike 60 miles or so a week. Wow. I've got a nice little uh, garage gym set up in my in my garage. Mm-hmm. So I'm not back at, at my CrossFit gym, mm-hmm. uh, but I do work out with some folks in the garage and I throw some weights around and have fun. Tim, on our homepage on thebloodline.org, we have a phrase, after a diagnosis comes home. If you were to finish that sentence, what would you say? After a diagnosis comes... After a diagnosis comes the rest of your life. Nice. That's a good one. Right? Because diagnosis isn't necessarily a death sentence. Right. Right? It's, you're still going to keep living. For a while, anyway. And nobody you knows. Know, like nobody even, nobody knows. even if there's stats or there's... Nobody knows. We were talking with this um, young adult. She is a model. And she was reading these articles and everything said there's a five-year mark or lifespan, five years. And she said that she became so obsessed with this five years that everything she did was, okay, well, in five mm. years. And then she had, to say, she had to say to herself, stop. Nobody even knows if that's true for me. It may have been true right. for 10 other people, but it wasn't true for another group. And so what makes me think that I'm, that I'm going to fit into that group as opposed to the other? And, and it's the truth is that nobody knows and you have to really take it day by day. And even if it is true, like, all right, so maybe you have five years. Well, get on with it. Right, right. Like, do the things that you want to do. Yeah. Like, you've been procrastinating. Like, now's the time to get to it. Right, right. But I think that having a diagnosis like this kind of puts that in perspective anyway. Like, I think you should do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's things that you want to accomplish in your life, get to them. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether or not you have cancer. Mm-hmm. Right? Giving cancer kind of gives you a little bookend or a little exclamation point to the whole process. But, but you should be doing... What, what makes you, you, mm-hmm. you know, get about the business of doing that. It's true. Right. We couldn't agree more. Well, Tim, thank you so, so much for joining us on today's episode. Absolutely. It's been so amazing just to hear your story and thank you for your willingness to share your story and be a resource to so many patients and caregivers. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.